Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. My beloved to me is a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Anybody excited about Song of Solomon? Yeah? And by the way, that was written by a woman, not by a man. <laughs> Let's be straight. Let's just be very clear about that. Uh, next week, we're beginning. You are the most serious group ever. You're like, what is actually happening right now? <laughs> we're starting a series on Song of Solomon. Lighten up, everybody. I've been out of the pulpit for like six weeks. And so my um, pace is going to be quick, and I'm feeling lighthearted today. But next Sunday, throughout the fall, we're going to be studying um, this really profound book, um, and likely throughout this book, um, you're probably not going to want to have a ton of young years, but we'll try to help you know the week before if there'll be terribly anything too inappropriate. Now today, we're going to finish Ephesians, so open up your Bibles, open up your apps, open up your digital Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6, you're going to be in verse 19, and uh, I'd like to um, tell you, I have a very interesting world on Sunday mornings. You may not totally realize this, but um, some very funny things are said to me by people when they come into the church, particularly newer people, particularly newer people over 50. And I would like to share with you a couple of the things that I have often said. They'll come in and I'll say, hi, it's good to meet you. Sometimes I won't tell them who I am just to kind of play a little joke on them. And then I'll get up and preach, and then they're like, oh, you didn't tell me who's the pastor. And, and so like, 90% of the time, I like to tell people, hi, I'm Michael. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church, just so they can have some categories. And here's often what it said to me. You're the pastor? <laughs> And I love to joke because I'm like, I know, right? Jokes on these guys. What are they even thinking, right? And uh, it's especially great when Pastor Tim or Pastor Craig are like standing around me and they know them because I've got these men who are 10 or 20 years older than me with gray hair and they obviously are infinitely more mature. And they're sitting like uh, totally, totally confused here. And I, I live in a world um, where I experience um, transference of caricatures, okay? Um, people have these notions, these ideas of what pastors are supposed to be like, what they're supposed to look like, and uh, often this happens, and so, uh, but I, I know I'm not the only one, so for example, um, if you're an engineer, there are caricature, caricatures about you, like you're super type A, and there's always something up your note, you know what, and everything is black and white, and it has to be perfectly in order, or whatever, which isn't always true, but there's a caricature when people meet you. Now, IT guys, you have a great reputation for having zero personal, like human interpersonal skills, right? You're always like, I'm in a computer all day. I have no inability to interact with human beings, right? Caricatures, now some of you are like, that is not me. Because caricatures aren't always true. Can I get an amen, Village Church, right? And so one of the things that I hear often is after this, you're the pastor? Like question mark, like this is not humanly possible. You don't look like a pastor, and I'm like, thank you. Like, I think that's good. And I've, I've figured out over time where the majority of these characters come from. Reverend Lovejoy on The Simpsons. Of course, none of you are familiar with who that is, right? <laughs> right? I grew up watching The Simpsons, and little did I know when I came to, like, the village church and the more evangelical, like, hub of the world, um, that that is anathema, and you're not supposed to do that. Now I know. And, um, but... 
I, at 19, it was, I've been pastoring for about 17 years now, and uh, at 19, um, I started experiencing this, you're a pastor, you don't look like a pastor, like these two phrases. And I wondered, where do all of these caricatures come from? Because I knew a lot of pastors, and over 17 years, I've gotten to know a ton of pastors. I actually grew up in a church, it was a large megachurch, and all of the pastor's kids were my buddies. They were like all in my same grade. There's a good handful of us. So I knew pastors. I knew pastors' homes. I knew the pastoral life. I knew their children. And they were just normal guys for me. And so over, over time, what happened is I would get to know some of these pastors. One of them was a few years back. And again, I was thinking to myself, oh, good, I get to meet another pastor. A buddy of mine got married. We go to his church in another state. And uh, I won't tell you the denomination. Privately, you can ask me. But so the, the guy comes to me. It's a gospel-believing church, so they got the gospel right. That's good. And uh, I go and say, hey, I'm a pastor in, in Bartlett. And he goes, oh, hey, can I tell you something? And I said, sure. He goes, there's another church in the city, uh, same denomination, and you're not going to believe this. Every week, they put up the hymn numbers on their screens, on the, you know, the plastic numbers, I forget what they're called, you know, you know, the ones that like they go in, you have to change them every week, you know, the, what are they called? The board, whatever it is, I don't know, like, I don't even know how to use a pen, so like, so he's like, can you believe that, like, we only use screens, and I'm like, they're, they're in the same denomination, and you're on the same team, like, I thought you guys were friends, and then he proceeded to tell me how they were a much better church than they were, and I literally left. I'm listening to this guy, and I'm thinking, you're not a Christian. You don't even understand the gospel. Like, this is insane what you're saying to me. So we get to the rehearsal, and I think he's rehearsing. And he gets in front of everybody, and he says this. He goes, welcome, everybody. Let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, we beseech thee. And I'm sitting here, and everybody in the room is like, what in God's green earth is happening right now? And I look at my buddy, and I'm like, and he goes, he's new. I don't know him. And I'm like, this is, this. and so I'm starting to understand where these stereotypes come from. And not too long ago, I was sitting with a group of pastors in the general which is the Chicago area, and I met this guy, and I went up to him, and I said, hey, how are you? And he says, apparently I'm supposed to be fine, so I'm wonderful. And I said, okay. And I'm like, I mean, if you're not, that's fine. He goes, everything's good. Everything's peachy keen. And I'm like, Clearly, I sense some sarcasm, and then he walks away. And I'm thinking, okay, these are the stereotypes. This is why, like, people meet these people, and then they see them on TV, and media captures that, and then transfers that. And then in pop culture, we all leave, and we're like, that must be what a pastor's like. And so you meet a normal guy, like Pastor Craig or Pastor Tim, and, well, I guess myself, and you're like, oh, that doesn't fit. The mold. And what I found is this, is that as I've gotten to know pastors, here's what I know about the majority of them. The majority of them are good men who love 
Jesus. Uh, they have all different kinds of passions, all different kinds of personalities, from super weird and quirky to really, really, really normal. Don't judge me and tell me where I'm at on this spectrum. <laughs> but here's what I know. The majority of pastors love Jesus, and they're good men. They don't want corrupt gain. They, they don't want to try to prove something. They really just do love you, and they love Jesus. And so we get to the end of the book of, uh, of Ephesians, and here's what we're going to find. Paul has been theologian Paul. He's been pastor Paul. He's been very, 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 very intense throughout this entire book. And he gets to the end of this book, and it's almost as if he takes his pastor hat off for a moment, and he gets very vulnerable. He gets really transparent. And he just says, look, can we all just talk? I want to just show you what's in my heart. And, and I so wish that as the caricatures of pastors were developed, um, that they would look to the Apostle Paul rather than to Reverend Lovejoy. And I want to just give you a text to launch us off, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And uh, this is Peter talking to pastors, and here's what he says. So I exhort the elders among you. The elders is a term for the, the pastors who are leading in the office of elder. These guys have an actual position of authorized responsibility to lead and to shepherd the church. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. He looks at them and he says, you have, you have a job here. Your job is to be a shepherd. Your job is to care. Your job is to love. You have some Really great opportunities here. Number one is exercising oversight. You're supposed to be a leader. You're supposed to give them spiritual direction. This is not under compulsion, but I love this. You're supposed to lead willingly. It says, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those, over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. And so when you get down to like one of, one of the initial like charges of a pastor, it's like you got to want to do it. You got to be excited to be a pastor. But listen, you get the privilege to be an example. But then he goes on and he says, and when the chief, Shepherd appears. Village Church, who is the chief shepherd? His name is Jesus. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. By the way, do other people get the unfading crown of glory other than pastors? Yes. Yes. There's this word that we use, we call it under-shepherd. And we use this word is because every pastor is an under-shepherd. We shepherd 
under the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to just give you kind of a global picture here. Dads, you, um, in the way you dad, and the way you father, you get to give your children a tangible, emotional, experiential representation of God's fatherly love. Dads, do you fall short of this? Every dad, just give me a big amen. Amen. And the ones who didn't, you're liars. So you, your job is to leave in your children's heart and soul an indelible, profound picture of God's fatherly heart for his children, those who trusted in Jesus. Um, now, I, I, I love to think of moms like this. Moms, you get to reveal so much of the nature and the character of the Holy Spirit, um, that kind of care and compassion and help uh, and teaching and guidance of the Holy Spirit. That's so much like who you are. And so I really believe that as moms raise their children, you lead them with this indelible mark of who the Spirit of God is and what it means that he is our helper. Now, pastors, we have a unique opportunity to give a micro picture of Jesus's loving, shepherding leadership in your life. And let me tell you, as a dad, I know this. God is a billion times better as a father than I am. And as a pastor, Jesus is an infinitely better shepherd to your souls than Pastor Tim or Pastor Craig or myself or any of our elders or any of our pastoral staff. And yet, God plants specifically on purpose these imperfect men in the church's life to somehow give you a micro picture of Jesus' loving leadership over you. The Village Church, I don't know if you've noticed, we've had a big last like year. We've hired Pastor Tim. We've hired Pastor Tom. We have hired Pastor Craig. We've hired Pastor Matt. I don't know if you know this, in the last like, we'll say 12 to 14 months, this has been an enormous time of transition at the Village Church. And here's what I know for each of these guys. Like me, they experience transference of caricatures, but at the same time, I know because we hired them and we vetted them very thoroughly. Can I get an amen from everyone get vetted? Uh, we vetted them very thoroughly, and I can tell you, though they're not perfect, I can tell you what's in their heart. And what's in their heart is not the caricature that the pop culture machine wants to tell you about pastors. And so even though 
I think culture as a way of stereotyping. Here's what I want to do. I want to use the, the example of Pastor Paul. I want to use the example of the pastors in this church to do three things with you. Number one, I want to reset your perspective on pastors in the world. Some of you, it's your first time, and you think pastors are crazy. And my goal is to make us maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more human. To reframe your relationship with your pastors. I want you to look at Paul's heart and the way he wants to interact with the Ephesian church. And I want to challenge the way you view and the way you interact with your pastors. And then finally, I want to release people with the pastor's heart. Uh, Even though the office in Scripture is designated for men, there are men and women all throughout this church with a sincerely powerful pastor's heart. And you need to be released to shepherd the people that God brings under your authority. So in this context, Paul goes back and forth from the practical to the theological. And here's what we know. Paul loves, loves, loves the church in Ephesus. He spent three years of his own personal time leading and loving this church. He sent his absolutely best resources to Ephesus. There is no church, I believe, that Paul loves more or has a more affectionate relationship with this than with this church. So in your notes, you look under this, point number one is he closes this letter out to the church in Ephesus. I'm going to tell you three things that your pastors want. Number one, your pastors want to lead out of weakness. Your pastors want to lead out of weakness. I want you to hear me again. Your pastors want to lead out of weakness. Here's what he says. Uh, He's just getting done talking about spiritual warfare. Pastor Craig um, just gave a great couple sermons on spiritual warfare. Uh, And here's what he says. In light of all this, in light of the demonic activity, in light of the fact that this Battle is not about flesh and blood, but it's about principalities and demonic forces, and that there's more going on than just this. Here's what he says. Pray for me. So, okay, by the way, when people say, oh, can you pray for me? Or you're in a small group and you say, here's what you can pray for me about. We in American culture we tend to think those are just trivialities, okay? It's a default. We have to fight the lie that they're not. Um, But oftentimes, we'll just pray or say, hey, could you pray for me quick? Yeah, I got you. This is not one of these trivialities. This is a sincere, powerful moment of vulnerability for the apostle, for Pastor Paul, to the church he loves. He's saying, in light of the demonic warfare that is going on all around me, I need you to pray for me. He's going to get vulnerable here. He says that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly. 
to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Throughout this entire letter, he has not made it a point to let them know, oh, by the way, I'm in jail. Now, did they know? Sure, the guy who brought the letter probably told them, oh, yeah, by the way, Paul's in jail. Here's a letter from him. But here's the point. He waits at the very end to talk about this. And I want you to catch this. This isn't just any normal kind of prison. If he's going to get fed, it's not going to be by the Roman guards. It's going to be because people bring him food. He He is likely going to be oppressed and beaten and mocked. And there are numerous things that typically happen to prisoners, especially prisoners who start to make some problems. And here's what he says, for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. This is not Paul saying, I'm awesome, I'm strong, I'm going to share the gospel and let me show you how to do it. Here's what he's saying. I am weak, I am afraid, And I need you to pray for me. Because if I go bold in here, here's what it could mean. They could starve me. They could beat me. They could mock me. They could torture me. And you might look at him and say, you've already been there, done that. Last time I checked, if you get beat to a pulp, it doesn't get easier the second time just because it's been done the first time, right? And when it happens the third time, it's not like you're like, oh, just bring it on. Getting beat to a pulp is easy. Being starved is easy. So for Paul to speak boldly in this context is not safe. In pastors in China, um, they have their own unique challenges because for them to be bold with the gospel, even to go public, means they will be imprisoned. They likely will go to a prison camp. Many of them disappear, which means they were killed. They were publicly shot and executed. For to be a, to be a pastor in China... That is, that is the a common experience and a common fear. Here's what I found. It doesn't matter where you are. Every single pastor has their weakness and has their fear. And our job is not to hide it, but to lead out of it. And so I'll just, I'll be candid with you. Like some, one, of, one of the things that gives me pause every time I do it is every time I speak on gender, sexuality, abortion, or marriage, I take pause. My wife gets very nervous. She'll tell you this. People around me get very nervous and they start praying because these words are not just said here. 
Then they go on to a Q&A podcast, and they go on to a sermon podcast, and they come up repeatedly, and they go out literally now all over the world. People can share it and give it away. And I don't know when the day is going to come when those words are hate speech and punishable by jail or fees or fines. I don't know when that is. I don't know when my face or my name goes public on some um, newspaper in Barlett. Pastor Bigot says, God made marriage to be a man between a man and a woman. That God says, Gender is good, and you should stay with the gender I gave you at birth because that was my will for your life, and I didn't make a mistake. Like When that becomes hate speech, I don't know what's going to happen. I can't tell you that. My hope is that it never does. My hope is that I turn 95 years old, die preaching an awesome sermon where a 1,000 people come to Christ. That would be like my like little dream, but I don't know if that's going to happen, right? And I love to say to you that every time that a podcast goes out on those issues, I don't think twice about it. But I go listen to it once, and I go listen to it twice. And there's actually been times where I've had to call Bethany up and say, you need to take this off, we need to redo it, because it wasn't tactful and it wasn't savvy. And I'd love to tell you that it's always easy. I'd love to tell you that when I get up and make comments and you're like, he's bold. No, Um, I am fearful and I am weak, but I will choose to do the right thing. Because I love you and I love this world more than I love my safety. Thankfully, right now, I have the illusion of safety, but we don't know how long that'll last. I want you to just look at these verses from the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 2.3, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Does this sound like the guy who has it all together? Does this sound like the guy who's like always strong? I never have a a fearful emotion in my body. I always open my mouth with clarity and with boldness because I am the pinnacle Christian. Is that the picture of Paul that you see? The answer is no. He goes on. 2 Corinthians 11.9, who is weak and I don't feel weak? You want to talk about weakness, he'll say? You think you're weak? Try being in my shoes is what he's saying. Who is led into sin I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. You're going to find all throughout Paul's letters, he declares to the people his weaknesses regularly, regularly. It goes on. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I will tell you that I am nervous and I am trembling when I speak boldly 
And if God decides to move through that, then all of the glory will be given to him and not my inward fear or my perception of strength. Next one. 2 Corinthians 13, 4. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. He is regular. This is just experiences with the Corinthian church, by the way. We could go on throughout his letters. Paul's difficulty is beatings. Your pastors may go out boldly, but it does not mean they do not go out without fear and without weakness. So we have at the Village Church um, a number of, we'll say, former elders, people who were elders once in this church, um, and then they moved aside from the office for a season. We have former and retired pastors who attend Village Church. Um, We have a number of pastoral staff, elder staff. Um, We have a lot of men in this church who have been, are, or will be pastors. And there is a pastor heart inside of them, and it is powerful. And here is the cultural temptation of every pastor to give the false impression that you're stronger than you are. Here's what I want to do. And here's what your pastors want to learn how to do. We want to lead out of weakness, but behave with boldness. I want to be able to say, Village, it makes me a little bit nervous to put these podcasts out worldwide. But I want you to know that I'm going to do it anyways. I want to lead by example, but I need you to know that I'm leading out of weakness. Here's what I love. I want you to catch this. Because Paul, you would think, who should be encouraging Paul, by the way? Should the Ephesians who get to go to bed in their own comfy beds at night, should they be sending somebody to Paul? The answer is yes. It is the one suffering, by the way, who is encouraging the church in Ephesus. Uh, I want you to I want you to catch this because some of you, you're suffering, you are in pain. You are miserable, you are oppressed, you are depressed. And here's what you may not understand. No sermon from the most gifted preacher with the most powerful voice can touch encouragement from someone who's suffering. In our suffering, Paul is teaching us this. I want to say, woe is me. And yet God is showing us by the Apostle Paul, oh no, rise up and your encouragement takes a depth and power you cannot imagine because of your current suffering. 
I could say something from up here, but if you in the middle of suffering bring the same encouragement, it lands with exponentially more power. Maybe, maybe the suffering now for you is because there are people who have it worse and you need to use the power of your weakness and suffering as a catalyst to build up and encourage. Point number two, your pastors want to live as your brother. Here's what he says. So that you may also know how I am doing and what I'm doing. So Paul, like a good missionary, you know, like what do missionaries do anyways? Nothing. They just sit around and they don't do a thing. Is that true, by the way? No, it's not true. And so Paul knows if you can't see him, the temptation is to think they're not doing anything. So he's like, I'm going to send this dude. His name is Tychicus. You guys say Tychicus? I love it. I love these names. Uh, Tychicus is a, an Asian Gentile, and Tychicus is a dude that Paul loves. Um, Paul sends Tychicus over to the church at Ephesus at least twice. And uh, what we find is the last letter of Paul, 2 Timothy, he's about to die, he's about to be executed for his faith. And you know who's standing next to Paul in prison? Tychicus. And you know what Paul's final move in the last part of his last book that he pens, pens is? He sends Tychicus back to Ephesus, the church that he loves the most. He takes his best encourager, he sends it to the church that needs the most amount of encouragement because this church in Ephesus is literally in the middle of a city just filled with sex and magic and debauchery on really perverted levels. And so he sends Tychicus, and he calls him this, the beloved brother and the faithful minister or pastor. And he says, in the Lord, uh, will tell, uh, in the Lord and he will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. We need to notice two things about Tychicus. We're going to focus on the nouns, and then we're going to focus on the adjectives. Here's the nouns. Brother, pastor. Brother, minister. I'm going to say this probably once a month or more until I die. If you miss this point, you miss the relationship between a church member and a pastor. I am your brother before I am your pastor. And if you mix these up, you will use me. And when I don't perform for you, you will crucify me. I'm not saying that because you're bad. I'm saying that because we have watched anecdotally Church after church after church after church after church, 
crucify their pastors. And the reason they've done it is because they miss this fundamental principle. I am your brother before I'm your pastor. And when I cease to be your pastor, I will always be your brother. And if I mess up, or Pastor Craig messes up, or Pastor Tim messes up, or Pastor Matt messes up, or any of our elders mess up, here's what we know. We surround them as a brother before we crucify them as a pastor. Do you get the difference? Massive. Massive. And I love this. He just orders the relationship. Paul, understanding the human propensity to idolize pastors, put them on levels that they don't deserve, that their, we'll just say, character cannot even handle. And he says this, he is your brother, and he is also a minister. But he is a brother, but he's also a minister. Here's the lie. My pastor is a position before he's a person. Another lie. My pastor is his gift or lack thereof. It goes both ways. And then he's a brother. I mean, culture is a way of elevating. You see this. I mean, pop culture, superstars, pastors, superstars, etc. And they become their gift, rather than remaining a brother. I got to tell you, I know that's lucrative for a lot of people, but for our staff here, that's our worst nightmare, that we somehow become more about what we can do for you than we do about being your brother in Jesus Christ. And I love that Paul just humanizes Tychicus. He just says, look, he is your brother, He is also your pastor, but if you invert these things, it's going to go really, really bad for you. Some of you need to repent of your pastoral idolatry, and some of you are experiencing the hardship of pastoral idolatry. Pastors in your life have taken an inappropriate place, and guess what? When they didn't perform up to the standards that you expected, what happened? wounds, right? We say all the time, daddy wounds, sex wounds, church wounds. Three greatest wounds that can happen in your life. And one of the ways that I feel that I can protect our staff and our pastors and our elders and our 2B elders and then elders who come here 30 years down the road after work, whatever, Um, one of the best things that I can do for you is help shape and frame this relationship because you may say, why are you talking about pastors? That's so narcissistic of you. Because your relationship with this office is huge because this is often what tanks churches is an inappropriate relationship between the pastors and the church. The gift and the person. You get that right, you can spare yourself from so much heartache. And then I love this. He says this, adjectives. He is beloved, and he's faithful. This would be like my dream, 
is uh, if I was in prison um, and somebody wrote me a letter and said, I just want to let you know, you're a beloved to this church and we're so grateful for your faithfulness. But I want to be, I want to be like Tychicus. I want to be beloved by my church. I don't want to be used by my church. I don't want to be beloved uh, because of whatever gifts I do or do not have or hated because of gifts I do or do not have. I truly am looking at you, and I know I'm speaking for Craig and Tim and every one of our elders and Pastor Matt and Pastor Tom and Pastor uh, Matt, there's two pastor Matt's now. Okay, so all the pastors that we got here, right? All the guys who are leading and shepherding, I want you to know this. We, we want to be beloved. We want to be brothers. But we also want for the season that God calls us to function in the office that he's called us to function in and to be faithful and to be as faithful as we possibly can. Number three, your pastors want to leave you with Jesus. So um, he closes with a benediction. And at the end of every service, we have a benediction where we come up and we read scripture. And uh, this is a very common, um, uh, we'll just say, a device that people would use to close letters in the ancient world. They would summon the gods, and they would say, Oh, gods, may you bless these people. Give them some kind of grandiose wish. But it really meant nothing because, A, the false gods don't exist, and, B, they were just little trite sayings. Paul doesn't have trite sayings. Do you know that? So like the Bible, like God didn't get bored of inspiring Paul at the end of the book, right? And he's like, all right, Paul, write whatever you want, we're done, right? That's not how this works. To the very last period, at the very last sentence of each book of the Bible, God is intently organizing and moving and stirring in the heart of Paul. And so here's how he benedicts, here's how he ends, here's what he says. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ 